Greetings, dear, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience, a very warm, open-arm audio embrace and a squeeze. This episode is brought to you by my company, One Circle Media. One Circle Media is a hybrid digital agency and media content creator. We create and design apps, websites, videos, social media content, and physical products. We are artists, directors, designers, producers, coders, editors, thinkers, makers, and creators who embrace story and creativity from design, web and app development, animation, docs, features, TV shows, digital and social media content to physical products. For our clients, we create content that builds networks and audiences across multiple platforms. Check out our work at OneCircleDigital.com and OneCircleBrand.com. If you work for a network, studio, brand, startup, or corporation, and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain, reach out to me at John at OneCircleMedia.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Working Experience. The Working Experience. Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleet. There is no service on the... Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, Yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. John, we need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? Man, HR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. To stay late, Bob. Teamwork makes the dream work. (laughs) They're moving in a different and after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Who ate my Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Working Experience Podcast. My guest today is artist Kate Russick. Kate is a sculptor and textile artist who splits her time between New York City and the Pacific Northwest. Her exhibitions include Studio Archive, Vantage Points Collective, the Lee Tang Gallery, the Low Art Museum, the Gallery of Visual Arts at the University of Montana, Portal Art, and Governor's Island Art Fair. Additionally, Kate is a daytime Emmy-winning designer and builder of costumes, puppets, and props within the broader television and film industry, notably Saturday Night Live. Welcome, Kate. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to be here. Did I uh, get all that all right? Um, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> all right, for the most part. <laughs> yeah, the, my my Emmy's for Sesame Street. If I don't know if you want to put that on there, but it is for Sesame Street. Excellent, excellent. It's amazing how long that show has been running. Yeah, I mean, it's funny to be working for the most, you know, two of the longest like franchised uh, shows on television, yeah. uh, and out of in this was I, I wasn't planning this you know this wasn't like something I was wishing for as a child but I you know yeah. both of them um yeah. grew up on both of them um yeah as did I yeah very lucky to just to find myself in the right place at the right time yeah yeah um so can you tell us about yourself where you're from your background your education that kind of thing absolutely um I grew up in central Ohio um I haven't been there in quite a long time um but I went to school at the University of Miami um and I was pretty ambitious and got two BFAs while I was there. Um, I studied both classroom design in the theater art school and fine art. Um, and I got a, a BFA at sculpture. Um, let's see, I ended up 
kind of coming out of school and straight into the industry. And of course it is um, a little more organized to make, to have a job in the theater industry, despite the state of American theater um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and arts funding in America generally. Um, but I found myself in costume shops. Um, you know, I studied design, um, but I was always very, very interested in that sort of like um, technical aspect of building costumes and understanding that I could be a better designer if I understood the sort of like ins and outs, how the sausage is made, if you will. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that also kind of speaks to my, my proclivities. You know, if I'm going to study sculpture and make my own work, I'm also interested in like studying design and understanding how it works, making the, that work myself. Um, and I very quickly started working for other designers. Um, and so I worked in a Broadway costume shop for about seven years, um, which was a grind. You know, I learned a lot, um, but was hard, very hard. It's hard to work in theater. Just generally, a lot of people make the move from theater to film um, because of the schedule and there's more funding and, you know, you don't have to work um, on the weekends as much. And um, so I'd start, I jumped into television and film about seven years ago. Um, and I'm a very proud member of IATSE 764, um, which is our local um, here in New York City for uh, wardrobe, mm -hmm. which includes both costumers who dress the actors and make sure everyone's wearing the right clothes and the continuity is correct. And they're you know working very closely with the, um, the director and the cinematographers to make sure everything looks just right. Um, but also the tailors are in this union and we're not necessarily on set, although it happens. Um, but we are in sort of even further behind the camera working with the designers, um, to really like truly like realize their dreams. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they, um, work, we, we work so closely so that, um, you know, if they need to have something built, something that we make things that do not exist. Um, right. So we'll make adjustments to costumes, um, you know, first, you know, to fit the, like specific bodies so that everything looks perfect. Everything you see on television has been touched by a human and mostly the people who sew, um, which people don't realize. <laughs> um, you can't just buy the things off the rack and have them look impeccable mm -hmm. um, on your leading actress. Um but then there are also things that just need to be recreated to mimic something that happened, um, you know, like a period costume or something that matches something from history um, that's being recreated from like a from like a like a political event or something like that. Um, so that all that's that all runs through the tailoring shops on television shows as well. Now, is there a lot of research that you have to do? Like, you know, if it is a period piece, you have to go and really study those costumes? Yeah, I mean, the designers are coming with their own vision for sure, particularly in that in this realm. Um, but at the same time, like if you're a good tailor, you know that stuff as well and you're doing your research so that you're not only working with what they bring you, you are contributing as well. And, you know, for me, like I made this switch from design to construction um, because it is like the most, it, I, I think I found the most like collaborative niche in my industry. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. I don't have to be play diplomat as much as, you know, some of these other roles, like, um, but I can um, kind of offer the creative specs and ideas and contribute. And, and I mean, I do a lot of design work still in my tailoring because 
Um, I'm offering suggestions. I'm offering a construction technique that maybe isn't so apparent in a photo, but I know that this is how this happened because I know clothes. Mm -hmm. I know how they're made from the inside and the out. I've taken them apart. I put them back together and on, a, you know, back and forth kind of forever. Right. Um, so, um, so the research is, you know, it's, it's a collaborative effort, even in the research space. Um, but again, like, you know, we are looked, you know, the role that we play as tailors in the industry is to have this sort of um, costume history knowledge as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's a hot tip. If anybody wants to be doing this work, <laughs> know your history. Yeah, it was, in, I was listening to the director's commentary on this movie Autofocus that Paul Schrader did. And he was saying how, you know, in one scene, he said they were going to dress the actor, such and such. And then she came out in a completely different, you know, wardrobe. And he went to the costume designer and was like, I thought we talked. And she said, no, it works better like this. Mm -hmm. And he said, then I watched the movie. I'm like, yeah, it does work better like that. So he, yeah. and he worked with this person a lot. And he said, you just have to have people you trust. Because he said, I can't make every decision. I need people who are like, nope, it's going to work yeah. better like that. Yeah. And that's, that's like, that's a real, I loved hearing that because that's a real a point of humility and like um, self uh, reflection, you know, to know that you don't know everything. And mm -hmm. the project is always better when you could hire experts and you, yes. I mean, it's like a lot of people hire experts, but then to then trust them <laughs> to right. do their job and bring their, you know, bring their expertise because it is too much. Like these projects are so ambitious now like, you know, I just, one of the more recent series I just worked on, it was, you know, two, five, two hour episodes. That's five movies in a row. You know, that's like yeah. us shooting a consecutive movie after consecutive movie after consecutive movie. And there's just so much content in it. And so if you can trust your team, and I will speak for that as well within our costume team, if you can trust your team, you like, there's a level of confidence you can bring to your work across the board um that will inevitably just make the projects you know that much better is there also a collaboration with the actors like what do you feel comfortable in or do they absolutely do they, yeah. absolutely yeah i mean fittings are really really generative time um not only for the designer but i mean i can see it in the actors and i like i will say that from background fittings to like you know a-list celebrities you know people who are ones and twos on the call sheets um, they, you know, once they can see them, their own bodies in the clothes, and this often is like, you know, it's, it's many, many fittings throughout the course of a show. And it's many, many fittings, even like pre-production often for like, um, your main, your lead characters, um, you can kind of see it happening and, and then, but it is a collaborative effort too. It's, it's the designer presenting why they've made these selections. It's a conversation between the actor and the designer. Uh, kind of running back and forth because inevitably they, you know, the actor has done their own research, like a lot of research, hopefully. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm there kind of to be an, just like this other voice as well. Um, you know, frequently like letting, letting that conversation happen, but sometimes there are really kind of like key points to, to interject and that I've seen that kind of like light up, um, you know, and spur some, some, um, some ideas and the actors as well and and I think because of that it's sort of like that's when film and television starts to feel like theater to me if mm -hmm. <laughs> that makes any sense yeah uh, because of the sort of like the you know collaboration is live in the room 
are actors ever of the mind like i'm not going to wear that i feel ridiculous in that oh I definitely absolutely really? absolutely but that's the point also those fittings it's that like you know they're often frequent and throughout the project um but that's good data too you know mm -hmm. nobody nobody gets their feelings hurt too much you know it's like because we're all we have the same interests in right. having making a successful believable like maybe informative um project and you know if you can't get the actor you know if, if you, you you can't you can't harangue or like wrangle an actor to do a thing they don't want to do and you certainly and honestly you wouldn't want to because you want them to be um comfortable in the skin that they're adopting right and in like it literally is our job to visually convince them so that they can convince us and like put on this these um do their their work which is you know when it's done masterfully it is like an incredible thing to witness when it really affects their physicality how they move how they and it, it yeah. must help them get into the character like how this character just does things physically definitely and i mean you can see it almost immediately you put a pretty you know you put someone who comes in in a t-shirt into a suit yeah. they're their demeanor changes, their demeanor yeah. changes, their body language changes, what they, you know, what they feel they can do and what they cannot do. And like, I've, you know, I've, in some earlier parts of my career, that's like, I've had some, I've had some less than helpful feedback about that, but like people who know, know, <laughs> like we're putting, it's like, you're in a suit for a reason. Your character wears a suit for a reason. Like right. think about that. Like, and you know, they, they know that like, this is, this is who this person is. And yeah. this is, I am playing um and that you know that limited range of motion in your shoulders we want that that's there right. for a reason you know like that helps and um a lot of times you know you know the people the most talented and wonderful people I've worked with like they they absolutely understand and like um are, are here to collaborate their performance with this character with the clothes with the skin they're in like and and it's and it's a full it's a full body experience I always love actors who um, are willing to abandon like their like Brad Pitt is a very good looking actor, but he's mm -hmm. done roles where he is almost unrecognizable because he looks so strange and he moves yeah. so strangely. And I always otherwise you end up with a I don't know, a cast of beautiful people in beautiful clothes. And it's like, this is not interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of that happens on SNL, too. It's like, you know, we sometimes pitch ridiculous things to people who have, you know, no time to prepare right. um, for that character. <laughs> and, you know, the ridiculous thing really helps. It really helps them kind of like snap real quick into mm -hmm. like, oh, I have to play this person on a roller coaster with my teeth out like yeah sure but once you put you know once louis puts the prosthetic on and they put we put this ridiculous outfit on them that like looks like they've been blown in the wind they're like oh okay yeah, I, yeah. i'm here i get it <laughs> yeah yeah that must and, really and help them the bravery of the bravery of that is is just it's it's a joy frankly you know it's like yes they're that makes them a brilliant actor yeah and like pr like very well uh honed in their craft but it's also like a like becomes like a joyful like human expression to you know put down the artifice and like really dive in yeah and just be funny and yeah let loose yeah and, and look a little ridiculous uh, yeah i feel if you're so concerned about looking ridiculous 
and you're that pompous and whatnot, you inevitably end up looking ridiculous, except you don't realize it. You just, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, it's this embodiment <laughs> piece, right? It's like, yeah. if you can like really own it, then yeah. like there's no, regardless of what you are asked to do or are supposed to be doing, you will yeah. look, you will look just perfect. <laughs> when I see Alec Baldwin come out in a coconut bra and a hula skirt to read, I'm like, <laughs> That's good. I like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, he, and that could that could go that could go if he wasn't owning it. That would go. Owns we it. Would not enjoy it. You know, owned the whole thing. Know. Didn't didn't break a smile once. <laughs> didn't break it. Was fantastic. Uh, so in addition, not in addition, it uh, the other. I don't want to say they're they're they're. Let me try to form a coherent sentence here, since it is a podcast. Uh, you're an artist in your own right, apart from working yeah. in television and. Uh, and movies and so forth. So could you tell us about that and um, the the fellowships and, and your uh, who you've worked for and that kind of thing? Absolutely. Um, yes. Yeah, so I um, have been maintaining a sculpture practice, um, fine art practice, um, primarily working in three dimensions um, since I got out of college. Um, it's, it's sort of this concurrent stream um, to kind of enrich myself as a creative person, um, my understanding of materials and um, concepts and, and really kind of process the world around me. Um, I was making very obviously highly political work for a very long, for quite a while. Um, and it's only been recent that I've kind of understood that like my, I come to my practice to, from, from a, uh, a place of empathy. Um, that's sort of a uniting factor. Um, I want to understand our experience in a way that I can touch and feel. Um, and I think by extension, feel touched, feel like, like my body is more active in the world. And so that is, that is like, that's what drew me to sculpture in the first place. Like, I want to be able to relate my body to objects in the world and to the objects I put in the world. Um, so at this point, um, I'm primarily working in found objects. Um, I'm trying to understand the waste landscape um, of the way that we live our lives um, and doing that through the actual materials that get discarded by our society. Um, I'm really interested in sort of the sort of like gray area of um, waste streams and discards and things that are no longer useful to us. You know, I've been in, uh, academically studying the sort of discard landscape for a very long time. Um, there's lots and lots of scholars doing work in the space and kind of what it, what our activities um, say about our values, what it says about our society at large, um, but also just sort of the functioning of our society. <laughs> mm. um, there's a lot, I only bring this up because, you know, recycling is a myth um, and, even if we believe in that myth, there's still so much in the physical material space um, that just kind of falls through the cracks. It's sort of the pocket, like proverbial pocket lint um, of the way we live our lives. And I and I, I will say like, I'm the way we live our lives, I'm saying this in quotes on a podcast, um, you know, I'm talking about Western society, I'm talking about like the American lifestyle that we have uh, exported across the world and is now like spreading and emulating and being emulated. Um, which is which is what? How would you define that? I would say, I mean, I would just make a distinction between um, sort of um, people who have been living closely 
more closely um, and lightly on the earth and have had this embodied knowledge and are living this embodied knowledge. Um, and I'm speaking specifically of like indigenous communities and indigenous wisdom. Uh, there's so much there that we in Western culture do not lis listen to. And as a, as a result have formed societies in which waste is built in, you know, we have discards, we have, we do not think like a forest. We do not think like an ecosystem. And it's just acceptable for us to like, you know, use a single waste or like single use plastic for literally 30 seconds and throw it away as if that is normal. Um, and that goes and, that, and that's throughout throughout the sort of material landscape. I mean, fashion is in clothes. They're they're made to be discarded. Um, you know, planned obsolescence is put into our electronics like um the, the cyclical nature of ways in which to like sort of keep nutrients. And I mean like material nutrients in, in our, um, in place, in use is not the norm. It is not the way we built our societies. Um, and so I'm approach this, this landscape in my work. Um, and I try to stay away from a place of disgust, um, and, a, and, stay on a path of learning, a path of recognition, of sitting with some of this ugly, these ugly things that human beings have done to the earth and the way that we live. Um, because I think staring over the precipice or just judging that like everything is horrible and we're hopeless and nothing can be righted does very little. <laughs> mm. I've been working, uh, I have a, a graduate degree in design for sustainability from Savannah College of Art and Design. Um, and so I've been sitting in this research space um, just to kind of understand the material landscape that we live in and the way that we relate to objects. And uh, you can only bang your head against the wall so many times before it really starts to hurt. Yeah. Um, and in order for me to kind of approach this topic in my practice and to, you know, care for myself, care for my like mental health, care for the people around me my audience i think it's really important to kind of come at this space with a with like a lens of abundance a lens of things are bad but how could they be better like how how can we change the way that we um sort of perceive um define what's valuable um and how can i use my work to kind of spur those kinds of conversations um because there's a there's enough doom and gloom in the world um, we know it's bad, you know, they're wild, you know, Canada's on fire. It is gross and like disgustingly hot here. Things are not normal. We have changed the planet. What do we do now? You know, it's interesting. I, I did a podcast yesterday or two days ago with this guy, Richard Kellenberg, and he's uh, he's like a, a non-resident scholar at Georgetown. He, he writes mm -hmm. books about social issues, things like that. And, uh, he was, I mean, on a policy scale, he was referencing the same thing. Like you mm -hmm. tell story, you know, in his book, he interviews people. I forget exactly what the title is, but a lot of it has to do with nimbyism, not in my backyard yeah, and yeah. housing and, and things like that. And um, he uh, is very much in favor of like economic affirmative action and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. But essentially it was the same idea that, you know, when you talk to people like, he interviews single mothers who are struggling and said that is always much more compelling 
than getting up there on a soapbox and reading statistics off to people about yeah. whatever it is. Because yeah. uh, people don't respond to that. They respond to stories. They respond to art, movies, you know, um, narrative, things like that. So it's it, it reminds me of, it, you know, they're two seemingly unrelated things, but they are related. And yeah, felt much the same way. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, I think there's, but I th also think that there's a place for all of it. You know, we do need to know the, the statistics. Mm -hmm. um, we do need to have like sustainable designers, like leading like community-based design projects to have people's voices be heard because the status quo needs to change across the board. But I think that's also how I can um, position my, my my artistic practice. You know, this is, I'm an individual working sort of like on an individual scale mm -hmm. and I can make a measurable difference in like, let's say, you know, tons, like tons or pounds of material I can put in my work, you know, but at the same time, it's less, I know the futility of that effort as like, I, as I can approach it. Um, but I also know that there are organizations that do, <laughs> that do make measurable difference and they have, you know, the organiz like the, you know, the organization mechanisms people, resources, that kind of thing to do the work that they do very specifically, very well. Um, like Materials for the Arts is a, an organization here in um, New York City and they, their metric, their mission is to like um, reclaim materials in order to put them back in the hands of nonprofit organizations and public school teachers. And their metric is to um, uh, record by the pound what they have saved. That is what gets them funding. That's what gets them support. That is a very simple and understandable tool to measure their impact in society. It's dramatically important, like dramatically important. But I think because of the scale of climate change, you know, the hyper object of climate change to, to quote Timothy Morton, it is too complex, too large, too, like for our brains to understand. And that because of that, we need this multifaceted approach. So we need the statistics, we need the stories and the interviews, we need um, the the poundage doc like like documentation of what we're doing for good. And then, but we also need these these conversations. We need these conversations in art, and we need like this sort of bodily connection. This like hard to underscore to describe and understand like abstract visceral feeling towards like objects and things um, that make you feel something that kind of change your perception on on this um, like very large scale um, problem. So at a very nuts and bolts level, how do you create a piece? Like what do you actually physically do sure. to create one of these sculptures or pieces or what have you? Absolutely. Well, I'm working in a few different mediums right now. Um, and I, I, I prefer that, frankly. Um, if you, you know, can't tell, I like to have a few different creative streams going at once. It's sort of like these tributaries that run in parallel so that I can like hop from hop from stream to stream and kind of have this passive time to be thinking about one I'm not, I don't have my hands on and then jump back and forth. I think that's tremendously um, generative for my brain. 
Um, so I'm working primarily in ceramics right now, and I'm also working in found objects and specifically at this exact moment, um, working with reclaimed aluminum um, in a body of work that I've been working in, in for the last like eight years um, called blind adjustment. Um, and so when I'm using found materials, I am, it is as much a process, it's as much a process as it is the object I'm building. And so um, when I'm the materials I choose to put in my work has some kind of um, personal connection, has some kind of like sweat equity in it, for sure. <laughs> the material costs in these projects are frequently quite low, like um, uh, uh, except for maybe some hardware that I'm buying. Um, and they literally are found by me or my community. I've kind of become known as a person who will use things in their work, will people save things for me now, which I love, I love. It took so long <laughs> to kind of be known as that person <laughs> yeah. in, my, in my circle of friends and my community. Um, so that means um, the back end of making the sculpture is quite labor intensive. So it's finding the materials, it's sorting them out. It's often disassembling. I have a whole studio full of uh, aluminum mini blinds right now that I'm taking apart. Every part of it will be used but the parts that I need need to be like sort of um, um, exercised from their mechanism as they would be used in a home. I mean, do you go out walking around in your neighborhood and you're like, there's a piece of aluminum. I'm picking that up. Absolutely. That yeah. definitely, that's, that's one of many, many tactics. Um, okay. You know, what's in my studio right now, I have been on a, an email list and I, I did, uh, and I was notified that these things were available. Some, I, uh, make contact with this person and he's like I didn't even I you know I thought you were coming for furniture but you know you mentioned you're using this specific material of aluminum mini blinds we have those in the windows I didn't even think about taking them down everything has to come out of here I'll take them down from you right now and come get them and so that's perfect that's exactly yeah. right. and that's exactly why I started working with that this very specific object in the first place because they're always in people's garbages here in New York City. So I've definitely like plucked them off the top of a, of a, a trash bag. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're like uh like in mini dumpsters outside of NYU when the when the dorms get shut down and remodeled at the end of the school year. Um and in this case they were in um an arts administration office down in Chelsea and they were gonna get dumped in the trash. And even for someone to even if they were gonna donate all the furniture and all, everything that they had those mini mines would never even make it off the truck into a retail like reuse place because no one wants to buy them. So it's a very, it's like a very like deep, like pocket lint kind of uh, activity. Yeah, <laughs> There's yeah. no place for them to go They're You know, they're yeah. made of plastic and they're made of metal. And so it can't be recycled because uh, of all this mixed material and they literally just get dumped. Yeah. Which so goes to you saying recycling is a myth largely like so many. It is. I mean, it works in a few different, you know, really specific like metals, maybe, you know, aluminum and steel. Yes. But like, you know, the American recycling model was built on exportation to, to less wealthy countries. And like, that's colonialism. Frankly, it's like we're shipping our waste out of this country. So we don't yeah. have to look at it, right. you know, maybe for like a nominal fee of like a few, a few bucks per bundle. But, you know, China doesn't want to, doesn't want our waste anymore and they shouldn't have to take it. I'm sure they have enough of their own. To exactly. Last. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's no altruism. I mean, it's like a very like right. low, uh, um, like a low um, cost kind of um, market. It, it is a market, but the yeah. market has also collapsed. So. so you take the stuff back to your studio, you're disassembling it. And mm -hmm. then what, what becomes the process of are, oh, when you when yeah. what what comes first does the concept come first or the materials come first or is it just maybe not that simple um i think it, it can be that simple a lot of times the materials come first um i you know have some attraction to things that have various like physical properties um you know i've worked in the puppetry world i've worked in the costume world i've, I've worked in the sculpture world right and so to me, the lens is kind of um, one in which there's like a performative aspect um, to the materials. And I don't mean that from like an actor on stage. I mean, um, the materials have a, a physical quality that allow them to do many things. Um, they move in the wind. They um, potentially like make a sound when they move, when they rub together. Um, maybe they're transparent and they have an optical quality that can be harnessed in different lights. Um, it's, it's that kind of stuff, um, that really draws me in. Um, there's a, there's a piece hanging in my studio that's, that's been around for a little while. And it's literally like my vinyl birth control envelopes, <laughs> all of them <laughs> from a period of my life when I was on the same medication and they're, it's vinyl, right? I know that there is no end game for vinyl. It's a tremendously like nefarious material, you know, polluting in the places it's made and there's no place for it after it is out of our hands and whatever use that we've, we've had for it. But it's also, so, so it's like a problem, right? It can't go anywhere. So I'm just going to hold on to it for a second. But it's also this incredible Klein blue. It's like the most like luscious, uh, inviting, deep cobalt that is very like I can't stop looking at um and so that's that became a piece like that became something very sort of one-off to explore what this like very simple shape could do by folding and then assembling in repetition and it's it's become this like sort of very elegant piece to hang on the wall and you know then it then it has a story too um what I've made, what I've replicated that like in paper by choosing a color of paint and all that kind of stuff. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So in that sense, um, the materials dictate the process. Wow. Um, and in that, I love that so much because I, you know, I've often said I'm like a material responsive sculptor, which I think is quite apt. Um, but the meaning and the concepts are very um, paramount as well. It's just, the process of making it helps reveal that for me. Um, and then I can kind of imbue that into the object and communicate that to an audience. So maybe in a sense, you're responding to the objects around you and the environment and, and the environment in which you see them and the role definitely. they play. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think it's a big thing um, to kind of use, I, I've, I've not, my, I can, observe my my vision is tuned in a certain way that is not necessarily everyone's um and I think that's that can be a gift I can offer you know that is that is something I can offer through my work to kind of change the idea of the way that we perceive the things around us um you know a lot of people work and found and found objects and a lot of people are doing incredibly beautiful things sometimes it's a little more chaotic and sometimes it's not 
for me, that sort of vacillation between order and chaos is, is like pretty specific to my process and pretty important. It's something I'm always kind of looking um, to because I, I, because that idea of changing the way that we might value something by transforming it um, is important, is, is, is so important. Um, there are certain kind of like craft and quality standards that I hold myself to that are like, I couldn't name them. Like <laughs> they're not tenants I've, I've, I've listed. Um, but it's, it's sort of a feel it's mm -hmm. a vibe. It's like a, it's a visual feel, right. It's sort of this like, uh, noticing of harmony, um, that you, that I can feel from the work that I think can, it like comes through in the work. Um, and that's why we make visual things and don't just write everything that we have to say. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you find that I kind of find with writing that oftentimes the process is that's the reveal. Like I would never, like, I don't really know where it's going. I have an idea. I have like a broad, but once I start writing, I'm like, oh, you know, that's what this is about. Or it yeah. that really comes out of the process as opposed to me knowing a place and trying to, or I may have th something in mind, but, and then it come becomes something completely different. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's, that's the beauty of like artistic expression. And I think specifically, I'll, I'll just speak to visual expression. It's just the meaning comes from the process. And if I had all the knowns, like, why would I do this? <laughs> it's entering into that sort of unknown space of like, I think this, like, I think these two things will happen. I don't know these other like three through 10, but I'm here to understand, I'm here to learn it, you know? And it's, so it's, it's learning the language of what the work is telling you. Um, and responding to it and kind of having this like continual conversation of like, oh, I didn't know this could do this or, oh, I didn't like, if I try this sort of like small variable in this like grand experiment, the course will shift. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and in that sense, like I'm, I'm so, I'm so grateful to this because it's this process because it will never end like this, the work will never be done in sort of a right. beautiful, like um nutritive way as opposed to like I must like I have to do this and this and this. like I'm I'm it, it the work does not exhaust me at all and if anything it energizes because of this sort of like point of discovery that's just always in there and even in the drudgery of like you know maybe you know doing a repetitive process for like days on end and there that is such a generative time to think and to reflect and you know, kind of keep checking back in of like, does this matter to me? And if it does, why? Um, and keep kind of creating that narrative. So it becomes like a story to tell. Um, and that's what speaks to us, right? I, we're, we're almost done with a short film I did last year editing. It's it's about 90% done. Ooh. And I've worked with this guy for a while. He knows all my little peccadilloes mm -hmm. and how irritating I can be. Because part of me doesn't, like, we have a deadline. There's a mm -hmm. certain festival. We want to get it in. So I'm like, because yeah. otherwise, I don't want to let, I love tinkering with it. I love saying, well, what if we just added five more seconds here? Or okay. what if we move that scene? It's like, you, <laughs> you could sit there endlessly and do that because yeah. I really enjoy it. Like, I really, and then after a while, like, okay, August 18th, this thing's got to be finished. Yeah. You understand? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I know. And it'll never be done. Every time yeah. I see it, I'll be like, oh, we could have, mm, or we should have <laughs> done there, that. There is peace to be found in that. I mean, yeah. like, 
you know, there's peace to be found in the work in like that specific work. Right. Because like you must finish it, you know, that you must, but there's some freedom in finishing, right. There's some finishing like freedom in the like uh, presentation in the, like coming to a culmin like to like a culmination to that, that frees you for the next thing. Right. It makes, mm-hmm. it makes space in your brain to start the next thing because I think to vacillate too long in that space, which luckily like that's sort of like the beauty of the, some beauty that I've found in my processes and my practice that like there are, there are parameters that like end my projects too frequently, which like I love, I love so much. Um, I'm not an obsessive list maker or anything, but like they are helpful and you know, it is somewhat satisfying to just, like move it up, move something off the list so that there's more space. And it's, it's yeah. more about that creating uh, the creation of space um, to then um, look at what's next. And a lot of times that is kind of a blank page or that is like a, like an empty work table, but shoot, that's, that's like, that's the stuff, right? Because then you get to be free. You get to play, you get to yeah. fail. You might make some bad art, um, but you know, that's probably like a momentary hiccup until you come on to the next question, the next set of questions that you're asking. I don't know if, if you run into this, but, um, you know, with, with film particularly, and, and this is even from people I consider creative, it's like, well, no, you got to do it this way. Cause you got to open it that way. And you got, I always think like, why do I want to do this the same way someone else did it? I mean, yeah. it becomes sort of paint by numbers and I'm like. Yeah, I mean, these are short films that are going to festivals like they're sort of meant to be experimental and what. But I still find myself getting frustrated sometimes. It's like, no, but you can't shoot it that way because like, but then you'll see a show like Atlanta where I'm like, they totally violated that rule you keep talking yeah. about. And, and they, they know they know to the high heavens that this is what we are doing. You know, yeah. I, I think I think when I hear things like that um, from peers or or, you know, collaborators like that that kind of becomes an indication that like oh i might not want to work with this person <laughs> yeah no i know I you know, know like yeah. i i like i don't I, I will hear i'm very open to like collaboration and like other people's opinions because i think it's it's data it's just data it's their opinion and most of the time it like it is more reflection on the way that they approach their work or where they are where they are in their work you know <laughs> um and that's fine um just doesn't but it 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 can be just that it can be an opinion it can be data it does not have to be rule and law you know what I keep telling myself I'm the boss I make the rules like Mm -hmm. you know in in a lot of in a lot of spheres especially these sort of like juicy creative spaces where there's real formation and like birthing and and you know the real the the proverbial ooze is like coming out right um you know, but then it is, I think it is important to kind of under have a sense of what's happening around you, um, the languages that are being spoken um, by other artists, you know, what is sort of like conventionally accepted, because then, you know, you brought up Atlanta, it's like, once it's conventionally accepted, then it's something to deviate from, right? Mm-hmm. It's something to very consciously deviate from, from like an informed place um, to, you know, make it be part of the conceptual backing, the backbone of, of whatever you're doing. So I think, I mean, I think I don't, I don't get too tripped up by those things anymore um, because 
I can read them kind of like a book, you know, <laughs> that person yeah. and the, and the sense of why they're justifying that. But I also, you know, but I will also give it a caveat before I shut it down completely. Um, there is a certain amount of communication that happens in, you know, allowing work, allowing artwork to be put out into the world. And I have an interest in widening my audience. I have an interest in letting people in to my world. Um, so this idea of like just deviating from the norm, deviating from any convention, all that kind of stuff. I believe in that wholeheartedly, but at the same time, if that alienates or if that makes, I don't alienates to like, like to an extreme where people just like cannot find their way in because I'm not letting them in specifically. <laughs> you got, you got to open the door. Yeah. You can't be selfish and narcissistic and say, well, you don't get it. Like, precisely well, maybe and, there's nothing to get here i or, mean if you yeah. have secret practices like i was talking to a good friend last night it's just like everybody has their secret practices you know like things that will, will you know are will not see the light of day maybe at some point they will but like they need to be a secret because they feed you know what you know the, the main practice um and maybe those are the places that you have these like massive transgressions and and that kind of thing but it but then you also like you get to do them and then you don't get to do them. You know, you get you there, there are places for both of them. Yeah. I was talking to a good friend recently and she, you know, she's had a gifting practice and a sort of commercial, cons you know, consumable art, art artworks practice for the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing to me. That is such like, that's, that's like allowing her practice and her work to feed all of the, like the multifaceted parts of her, you know, mm -hmm. to like feed her community, to um, feed her sense of generosity and, and like connectivity through her work. And then also support herself, like also like have museums acquire her work and, you know, galleries sell it and, you know, pay her mortgage. Like, I think it is important to kind of think about artistic production if I want like production is sort of a dirty word but at the same time we're producing stuff mm -hmm. um think about um just as diverse as we possibly can hold in our uh, hold in our brains you know in as in diverse ways in multifaceted ways so that it is what we do as creative people like feeds as many parts as we possibly can inside of us and mm -hmm. you know into the wider world how are you doing on time? Do you have a time constraint? No. <laughs> you don't? You're okay? Okay. No, yeah, I'm good. I, yeah. I, um, since we were kind of segueing into it, uh, so now what the piece is done, you've, you know, in your mm -hmm. mind. So what do you like? You get fellowships and things like that. People place pieces with museums, galleries. But how does yeah. that process work? That kind of, yeah. You know, now you're into, I guess, I, I hesitate to call it the business side of it. But as you said, you got to make money. You got to pay your rent. You got to support. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the administrative part of running a studio is no joke. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I definitely will have some friends who kind of like rib me that I, I get I get mired in the, in the admin. Um, but I actually like have found some joy in that that like focus on that part of the practice. Um, because, you know, once a piece is done, there's it's not the it's not done for me, you know, it might be physically made, 
but I am still like gestating with it. Like I need to sit with it. I need to stare at it. Like a friend of mine, he like sits his pots on his kitchen table for like minimum a few months so that they can kind of talk back to him. So he can keep staring at them so he can like perceive them in different lights and like literally look at every single crevice and, and surface so that he understands them. You know, he understands them. Yes, he made them, but like to, uh, you know, make and understand art can be like widely different things um, right. depending on what it is. Um, so, you know, I've tried to really like turn the writing about the work, the reaching out to people to explain and share about the work, um, a real generative thing for me because it's it's an it's a necessity. It's something I want to be doing. Um, not everybody chooses to like to like do this, um, but if it can generate something in me, if I can continue my learning about my practice and the work itself through communication um that feels that it that's great like that's exactly you know that's like another part of um learning about what this work can do for me does for others um and will continue to do um so i'm you know pursuing residencies and fellowships grants grant applications um and that requires like a fair amount of of just sitting down getting words on paper you know and that's a you know communicating to like a lay a you know, art lay audience. Um, and that's sort of a different language, which, you know, can be a struggle time sometimes, but also fun. Um, and then I guess more specifically to your question, this building of network to disseminate work into the world is exactly that. It is, it is person to person <laughs> at its best. And like, but there is some real beauty in that too, because you, then you get to meet people. Like you get to meet the most interesting, wonderful humans. Mm -hmm. um, my like group of friends and acquaintances, professional contacts are the best. I don't know if you can curse, but they're the fucking best. Like um, cursing is encouraged. Cool. <laughs> um, but I mean, they're the best, and they you know they they make me kind of turn a mirror back on myself. I learned so much from them and their practices, what's different, what's the same, like novel and insanely creative ideas and, and activities, which inevitably, you know, like I'm wrapped up in my own self, like I'm, I'm reflecting back and forth and like, then I get to share and it's, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think it can feel tiresome. I will say that it is a lot of effort to um, kind of put energy out after putting so much energy in um, yeah. to the work, um, but it's, it's it's part of the it's part of the game right now, um, at least as it stands. So it's it's interesting because uh, it just puts me in mind of like even just submitting a short film to a festival. Like it is mind-bogglingly <laughs> like this needs to be converted into an auto DCP format. I'm like I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what and yeah. then. You know, because I'm kind of a one man. Well, I do get help from a production company, but I don't think uh, people who I mean, like, yeah, making films is fun and art can be fulfilling and all. Right. But then you got to actually yeah, but then you have to you have to caretake for them. That's yeah. really what it feels like. Is that like yep. you are now like stewarding them, holding the hand of whatever yeah. the thing that you've made into yeah. the world um, and you you want to feel good about it. 
So (laughs) it really does like become this sort of care ethic for these things that you've created because it's, you know, it's wonderful and fine to make work for yourself and Mm -hmm. keep it. And like that serves a purpose too. But if you have an interest in other in sharing it with the world or sharing it, even with like your friends, it, it takes some, it takes some stewarding. It takes some like holding of this hand to like walk it out. And sometimes that means converting horrible, like converting into like some crazy, horrible file. Um, yeah. And, but you know, if you don't know what that is, that's also an opportunity to reach out to your friends, to people who aren't your friends yet, mm-hmm. um, to ask for help. Um, that's been like a very big growthy point for me in the last like year and a half year of my practice that like to you know I know I don't know everything but then to recognize that like I need to know I but I do have to accomplish this task right I have to like submit these photos to some uh, like a, a gallery like a goal gallery like a reach right and I can't do that on my my own so I need to ask for help and honestly, like that, some of those efforts that I've taken, like have been so fruitful and on like so many, on many, many levels, like on a personal level, on professional level, on like, just like building rapport and supporting other creatives um, to then support you back and forth forever. You know, uh, it's, that's kind of how our creative communities and frankly, like our lives get richer, mm-hmm. right? I, I find that, you know, when when you show that you're serious, it's been very gratifying to me how many people are like, yeah, sure. You know, like, yeah, we wanted to shoot in some guy's diner. And he said, sure. I, I didn't yeah. know the guy. And I said, well, we can pay. He's like, I will not accept any money. I'm mm-hmm. like, wow, that's so nice. And yeah. just, but also is used like creatives, I think, well, by the very nature of it, it's like my piece look at my piece, read my book, read, but no, you got to read other people's stuff. You got to look at other people. You got to go to their shows, their openings. Well, and I think that conversation gets shut down so quick as if like, it's pure generosity. It's not, (laughs) there's some like self, there's like some self, uh, um, satisfying in that too, because like by looking at other people's work, you learn about your work. You You, learn about what you're doing. You should it better yeah. or like you're you maybe you're some transgression or something or maybe you realize that some you're saying something in your work that you didn't realize because you now have a mirror that you couldn't have designed and you couldn't have gained that knowledge unless oh. you like go out into the world and like be with other people and learn about other creative people and their work um and that i don't know they don't tell you that in art school <laughs> like, no. they, don't, they don't tell you that like you know, it's it's not altruism or it's not like Pollyanna to like want artist friends. You need them. You need th- them to make your to like make all of this happen for you. I think it's called enlightened self-interest. I think it's the phrase mm. I heard once. And I thought that okay. exactly enlightened self until I sit there and I watch someone else's short film and I'm like, that's so much better than my film. And I'm <laughs> filled with resentment and anger now. And now I just have to wait a couple of days and be like, okay, <laughs> what can I learn from this? Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> just... have to be the only rage. Does not have to be the only response. Yeah, no, I can appreciate. Life. Yeah, and uh, be like, this person spent a quarter of the money I did, and this film is so much better than mine because I have better <laughs> ideas. And yeah. all right, maybe I can work with. Maybe we can talk with this person, and you know, yeah. work off. Uh, you know, help each other out. 
Totally. And that person will definitely want to talk about themselves. They will want to talk about their project because they're excited about it. Oh. It's probably so impressive because they believe in it. That's to speak to your point about the person in the diner. Once you, you know, when you know how strong the legs are on your project or your, your pieces or your practice, um, people want to be involved, you know, mm-hmm. like the more, the more I've just been saying the things that are hard and that are, that I, that I need help with, the more help comes to me. It's mm-hmm. insane. It's so wild. Um, because I, I think I, there were times in my life where I just sort of shrunk away of like, oh, I can't do this project because I have to do, I don't have this and I don't have this. And like, I would need to meet this person. And um, that life is too short for that. You know what I mean? If you yeah. really believe in it, um, dream big, you know, like don't, don't censor yourself. <laughs> Send that email, you know, I yeah. mean, the worst they can say is no, or get exactly. away from me or don't ever contact me again. It's like, yeah, well, fair enough, yeah you know? exactly. You just but get a, a no of, or you get yeah. a, or yeah. nothing, or you get nothing. no response exactly. or, exactly. you know, it's like, okay. Or, and then sometimes like, sure, you know, yeah. Yeah. give me a call or let's do the, the guys I work with now, they just were out in LA. He just blindly reached out to some guy and guy said, yeah, I'd love to help you out. So they flew out there and I don't know exactly yeah. what happened, but. I mean, again, what's the worst the guy's going to say? No, totally. I work with yeah. you, but exactly. it's hard though. It's it's easy to say that, but it's hard. It is hard for me anyway to ask people for things because then it's like, wow, if you say no, you make me feel like I'm not worthwhile and I'm not. Yeah. Worth I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I mean, you got to get over that and be like, I found if you want to do creative things, you have to be willing to kind of not worry about being embarrassed. I mean, I've been embarrassed so many times. It's like a callus. I don't even really feel it anymore. It's like, all right, that failed. I didn't know what I was doing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Let's just move on to the next thing and yeah. not worry about it. But um, so people yeah. recognize that it's a vulnerable spot. You know, it's like when yeah. you, you don't have all the answers, that's vulnerability. And like people, people want to help. People are generally good and like are yeah. just kind and generous and they like want us to have, like serve that generosity piece in themselves to feel whole, you know, yeah, yeah. and, and that's a gift that frankly can be a gift, you know, that's yeah. something you can, you can start intertwining with people and it's, and it's just lovely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. This has been a very enlightening <laughs> episode. I'm just going to ask you and not to, uh, I'm not asking you to dish necessarily, but you have yeah. worked on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Do you have a, a story you could share with us that would be of interest? Oh, to our, oh our yeah. I, you know, I have the best stories because they're the stories that don't get told. Um, and they're mostly about my team mm-hmm. um, who are the most talented people I've, I think I've had the pleasure to encounter. And that, this is like a tailoring team of about six people who collaborate with the designers. Um, and that design team is, is about uh, like four or five. Um, led by the incomp- you know incomparable incomparable uh, Tom Brocker uh, and Jill Bream and um, so yeah. they're the head they're the heads of your team on Saturday Night Live. Tom Brocker is is the head costume designer. Um, okay. Jill Bream has a very significant costume design role in that she does the film unit pieces, which is okay. huge. Um, and then there are like many assistants helping them. Um, and there, every every single person is just like brilliant. Truly, like you can't, you don't last very long unless like you really know your stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've 
our team has like just pulled off literal miracles. I mean, when the Chinese spy balloon got shot down, we were literally making Bowen into the balloon <laughs> at the at the pace of the news cycle. Um, so we started that thing Saturday morning and this was like a full team effort. My beautiful and talented friend, Debbie Lucas, like she and I made the, um, the balloon part, like the literal, like this is a big foam balloon that like is gonna read um, as his whole body is this thing um, on television. Um, let's see, Sam Bennett, like made this beautiful, made, he made the beautiful um, like um, satellite part got cut it's tv right. there are right. certain there are yeah. certain, <laughs> certain things we can't see certain things that don't perform in yeah, the way yeah. we had anticipated um and um we yeah we made that thing at, at the pace of the news cycle and so in the morning it was inflated it was still flowing over the over america right and then it got shut down so <laughs> that changed the way that we were constructing this thing it changed the challenge um, to make it something more flat and looking deflated. And, you know, we were already making the hat and we were making these little floaties. And um, it's just, I mean, that is sort of the name of the game at SNL. It's just like, you know, you don't get attached to anything and um, you do your job, you do it really well. And then you go home and start the next week. <laughs> That's nice though. It's nice to be able to do something, put it away start on the next thing definitely i mean that's the beauty of it for me is that i mean it's you know i have for a long time kind of described it as competitive sewing because it's not a competition against anyone else but the clock yeah yeah <laughs> um and maybe yourself maybe what you expect of yourself um yeah. but at this point it's it, you i feel so supported there too that like nothing nothing bad is ever going to happen even if like my worst failures could be realized realized in however I define them, whichever project I'm working on, everything will be fine. You know, yeah. you are expected to like, you know, really uh, rise to the challenge. Each, each costume, each, um, each sketch. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, you, you have the best, you know, you have the best people around you and supporting you and asking for help. Like our team is so cohesive at this point that like we can outsource like someone's making a sleeve someone's making the front someone's making the back like someone's making the collar and that's 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 five sets of hands four sets of hands and then anyone is you know maybe next few people are you know rethreading machines or threading needles to like hand stitch something like it is it is like the cogs are well oiled and it's incredible that sounds awesome well, uh, Kate, thank you so much for being on the uh, on the podcast. And uh, you have a website and everything where people can come check out your work. I do. Um, yeah, I I am at katerusick.com. Okay. Um, website always in progress, but there's mm -hmm. lots to see there right now. Um, lots of new stuff coming soon. Um, this was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you for being on. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot. And we'll be back at you real soon. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Working Experience. We'd like to thank our sponsors, One Circle Media. If you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain your audience, reach out to me at john at onecirclemedia.com. I would love to hear from you. And that's it. The end. The sweet end. Until our next audio encounter.